Welcome to another edition of Mwango Spaces. Well, Mokai, I'm the founder. It's another Thursday where we're going to have a really good conversation about Kenya's electricity value chain. The conversation was prompted by the recent kind of power blackout that we've had in the country. And we just want to get a feel of who are the key players in the energy sector in, the, in Kenya and what their role is. And to enable that conversation, we have two very good experts from Kenya Power here today. I'll start with a brief introduction. So maybe we could start with Rosemary and then Raphael. You can introduce yourself and see what you do day to day at Kenya Power. Thank you. My name is Rosemary Odur, engineer Rosemary Odur. I am a general manager at Kenya Power. I am in charge of commercial services and sales. Commercial services and sales does the billing, metering, and uh, energy accounting at Kenya Power. And in addition, I do loss reduction, commercial loss, loss reduction or reduction of losses due to theft mostly and uh, metering anomalies. I have been at Kenya Power for the last 32 years and I continue to serve gladly as the general manager. Thank you. I'm happy to be in this conversation. Thank you, Rosemary, and welcome. Now, Raphael. Thank you and good evening, listeners. My name is Engineer Rafael Ndolo, the Acting General Manager Network management. Network management is a division which is responsible of operations and maintenance of the Kenya's transmission and distribution grid, which involves also the system operation where I do energy dispatch. Thank you and it's a pleasure to be in this forum tonight. We'll start with the lights starts. Maybe we can start with you, so Rosemary. Maybe you can give us a bit of a brief on how you ended up uh, joining engineering. We're encouraging women to join these kind of programs. Uh, so maybe you can start with your brief story about your journey. And then Raphael can go from there. Thank you very much. I went to secondary school in a school called Nakuru High School. And Nakuru High School had a technical wing. And there is where I got an interest in engineering. In addition, in my personal life, I had two uncles who are engineers, one a mechanical engineer and another an electrical engineer. And they encouraged me to venture into the engineering space. With that background in Nakuru High School, I, I honed my interest in the area of electrical engineering. Then after high school, when selection came for the university courses, I chose electrical engineering and which I really enjoyed having had a little background already in secondary school in engineering. At the university, I had a few role models who had already gone into engineering ahead of me and one of them being a lady engineer whom eventually we worked with at Kenya Power. She's called Engineer Rosemary Gitonga. So that is how I found myself in the engineering space. Upon joining Kenya Power soon after my university education, I found that engineering had a lot of opportunities and a lot of interesting things that go along. And engineering also gives an opportunity to solve life's issues and societal issues, which is an area of interest to me. I also have continued to practice as an engineer and grown in the engineering field. Lightly, that is how I got into engineering and how I've gone into it through the years. How come we don't have more women in engineering? And how can that be remedied? Maybe a quick question on the start. It, it actually is not just in engineering. A science subjects in the past, and even while I was in school, many ladies were hesitant to join the science subjects. And therefore, eventually, when we got to career choices at university, you found there were less women who had done science and particularly the physics and math side of science. And therefore, eventually in the university, you'd find very few ladies. We were three in our class of 40. 
the mechanical class had 40 all men. And so those were the kind of statistics, about 23% then. During the current regime, we are working on affirmative action. And what we realized in the last few years is even attempting to get as many engineers as possible into the workspaces, you find the numbers are still lean. And so the, the strategy is going downwards into secondary school and primary school to encourage the female young ladies to take the relevant subjects that can lead them to engineering. In addition, just to demystify what engineering is, sometimes down in school, it is imagined that engineering labor-intensive career and it requires you to have big muscles and able to stand in the sun for long hours and carry heavy things. So we are slowly demystifying this and letting the ladies know that they really can't do engineering and there's a lot of opportunity in which they can make a difference. And the presence of ladies in, the, in engineering does bring an interesting tinge of the ladies' perspective into engineering. And I think it's a welcome direction that we need to go. Now we are talking about uh, efficient use of electricity, efficient use of energy. And I think this is a wonderful space for the ladies to come to. We are slowly seeing more and more of them getting interested and joining us in the engineering field. I think we need our spaces with you on women in engineering. At some yes, point. we could do a different one. It's encouraging to see you Great. being successful 30 years in the field. Plus, <clears throat> Raphael, now maybe you can uh, tell us a bit about yourself and your journey. Oh, interesting. I happened to find myself from a very young age interested in electronic stuff. A thing which happened to be, you need to connect things, try to do some manner of connections. And as I went to high school, I was quite active in science club and I happened to be in science, these competition symposiums, which go the way to nationals. And that is the time I identified my strength and chose to do engineering. It didn't just come easy because sometimes you would apply for a certain course, but the university would give you something different, even when you have not applied. And I remember I was admitted to do Bachelor of Commerce at the University of Nairobi, a bit disappointed, but when I inquired, I was told there is an opportunity to do in the faculty transfer, which I applied and successfully got to transfer to do electrical engineering. I put through the university and upon completion, I went to do engineering by starting the manufacturing industry, where I started my career with working as a factory engineer with Firestone East Africa, the tire manufacturer then, and diverted after a few years to do industrial automation. And while I was working in industrial automation with another organization, I happened to be offering services to Kenya Power and Kenjan. And I created a lot of interest now in power systems because I found it was quite a big space and a lot of interesting stuff. So when opportunity presented itself, I got to cross to Kenya Power and I've been working as an engineer in Kenya Power for the last 17 years. Thanks for sharing your journey. Now we'll maybe start with Rafael. You can give us a bit of a high-level view of the electricity value chain in Kenya. So we can start there and then we can dig deep into the channel. So your high-level, maybe Bud's view of the entire electricity value chain in Kenya, how does it look like? Okay, thank you. Currently, the electricity value chain, it's unbundled. We have generation transmission and distribution. And we have the different layers, the different categories. At the generation, which is now the power generation, we have uh, several players and the key one is Kenjan. And also we have whom we call independent power producers generating power. And I'll be able to give you just a big breakdown of 
the different energy sources or energy generation sources. We have hydro, which constitutes uh, 26% with an installed capacity of 840 megawatts. We have geothermal, which uh, again happens now to be the biggest currently with 28% with 940 megawatts, followed by thermal with 512 megawatts, constituting 16%. And then we get to winds, which is 435 megawatts, constituted 13.6%. Consider we happen to have the largest windy farm in Africa, which is Lake Tokana. And then we have also solar uh, generation, which constitute 210 megawatts. And do we do importations of 200 megawatts, having a total installed capacity of 3,200 megawatts. So that is at the generation. So then that, need, that power needs to be evacuated to the low senders. And we have both Kenya Power and Ketraco as the transmitters of that power. Then coming to the distribution level, we have Kenya Power as the sole distributor retailer, but we have another player called Rural Electrification and Renewable Energy Corporation, RERE, who do development of distribution network, but hand over to Kenya Power uh, for operation and maintenance. So generally, those are the players, but now we have other players supporting the industry in terms of expanding the capacity of generation. And we have Geodamo Development Corporation doing the Geodamo exploration. We have Nuclear Power Agency, Nupea, developing the nuclear energy front. And then overall, we have our regulator, who is the IPRA, Energy and Petroleum Regulatory Authority and all sitting under the umbrella of the Ministry of Energy and Petroleum. That's how the electricity sector looks like today. Thanks for that high-level view. Maybe we can start with the generation bit so that we can understand where the power comes from within the country. You can give us a bit more details over there. You talked of hydro, geothermal, thermal. What are those particular sources and where are you getting the energy from? Either of you. We have different uh, sources of energy. And uh, when we talk about generation, we have what we call installed capacity talks about the generating plant that has been installed, what the capacity is. If I could give an example of a portion mill, a portion mill can be rated 50 horsepower. That will be the installed capacity. But when you put it to crash, you might find that it is only able to crash up to 48 horsepower. And that is, as it ages, that can even get lower and lower, sometimes even up to 40 horsepower. So on the nameplate, it's written 50 horsepower, but the output is actually 40 horsepower. So on installed capacity, the output in the generation front, we call it effective capacity or the contracted capacity, which is reviewed from time to time as the machines are tested and found how much they are able to do at a point in time. And then the capacity is reviewed to reflect that. So on installed capacity, hydros are a total of 839 megawatts. Geothermal is 940 megawatts. Then we have thermals. Thermals are 562 0.8 megawatts. So a percentage wise, the hydros are 25.9% of the installed capacity and the geothermals are 29% of the installed capacity. We used to have hydro being the major part of our generation, but you can note that has now been overtaken by Geothermal, which is uh, the diesels and the gas turbines, have a total of about 17.6% of the generation capacity the installed capacity we have in the country. The next is wind. Wind has 435.5 megawatts installed capacity, which is 
8% of the total. Then we have other small sources. We have biomass. Biomass is very little at 2 megawatts or 0.1%. Solar is 210.3 megawatts, which is 6.5%. The solar is distributed in different parts of the country. We have some of it in North Rift. We have some of it in Garissa. We have some of it in Coast with a total of 210.3 megawatts. We also import electricity. We import from Uganda and we also import from Ethiopia a total of 200 megawatts, which is 6.2% of our generation. Then we also have thermal stations which are off-grid, the Wajias, Manderas, and several others, including Lodwa. We have a total of 42.2 off-grid thermal, which is 1.3%, and then 0.39 megawatts off-grid solar, 0.1%, and 0.55 megawatts of off-grid wind. That's a very small percentage, 0.001. So in total, our installed capacity is 3,246 megawatts. I want to quickly add, as I mentioned earlier, that the installed capacity may not be what we can get from these generating stations at any one time. We have the effective capacity of these generations is 3,127 megawatts. Now, again, may I quickly add that even the effective capacity, we don't get there on any single day because at every point in time, there is uh, machines that are off on maintenance. There are some that are off on uh, outages. And therefore, available capacity goes to about 2,350 megawatts uh, currently. That generally is how our generation mix looks like. Thank you. I can just also add now for probably listeners who may be wondering what is thermal, what is geothermal. The geothermal sources is the, the power which is generated from the steam in Okaria complex and around Menengai and where concentration of the geothermal power is. Steam coming from the hub and it is tapped, then it is used to turn engine. We, the thermal, when we talk of thermal power, we mean the diesel generators and mostly they are in cost where we have the rabai power. Then we have capable diesel plant for Kenjan. In Nairobi, we have Iber Africa in Dono. Then we have gas power in Adriba as well as Triumph power in Adriba. And the other thermal, which is diesel generator is called Bika power which is somewhere in Uitadia as you go to Dika. I felt that is important to appreciate. Then the hydros, which we talk of now, the ones which are generated using water, and they are in the eastern side, most of them, which is the seven forks, the town near the Kamburu, Getaru, Kindaruma, Masinga, and Kiabere. But also on the north Rift side, we have Tagbel, which has 106 megawatt capacity, and Sondumiriu in Nyanza together with Sangoro. So that's how our major generation sources are distributed. Then we have Lake Tukana, which is in Masabi, and we have Kipeto Wind, which is in Gong with 100 megawatts. So the wind with 310 from uh, Lake Tukana, and we have uh, Kipeto in Gong constituting 410 megawatts. May I also just add, apart from the thermal generation, the rest of the generation that happens in Kenya is green or clean. And therefore, Kenya has 90% clean energy. Sometimes the dispatch uh, takes a little more thermal and it goes below 90. But we pride, I, I think we are sixth, Raphael, globally in terms of clean energy mix or the green energy mix. So we are really 
ahead of the park in terms of green energy. We happen to be the top in Africa with the highest green energy mix. So that's the supply side. Maybe the demand side, uh, could you talk a bit about how that maybe fluctuates during the day, the week and all that? When it comes to demand side, the demand happens to fluctuate during the day and to give a, a normal profile, we get to our peak early in the morning from 5.30, then peaking around 6.30, 7. Then it stabilizes somewhere in between during the day and come to 5.00, it starts peaking up again, up to 7.00, Then it goes down and demand drops and late at night from 10 up to 4 a.m. The demand is quite low. So our peak demand, which we have registered lately, was in August, we have a peak demand of 2,170 megawatts. And as Engineer Rosemary highlighted, effective or available generation at one given time, find is around 2,350. So when you look at that, you find that our demand and our generation, the reserve is very little, 180 megawatts. As I said, the peaking in the morning and the peaking in the evening, then during the day, we normally have around 1,700 megawatts going towards 19, around 6, 7, and peaking at 2,100 and thereabout. That's how our load profile looks like in a typical 24 hours. Yes, and uh, in the night, after the 10 p.m., it goes down to 1,100, which is literally half of the peak demand and sticks at 1,100 until then the morning peak when it comes up to 1,800, settles at 1,700 before the evening peak. So in terms of the, the demand, do you know some of the key drivers uh, of this demand, especially when it uh, jumps during the morning? Uh, have you identified some who drive that demand? And then in the night now, who are the kind of people who are working and using this energy at night? So during the, the day, office spaces and industry are the main users of electricity. And that settles at around 1,700 megawatts. That is during daylight and daytime. We would put it at about 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Industry and office spaces mostly. In the evening, then the lighting comes in and the domestic cooking. The cooking is still minimal, but it, it does contribute to the rice at peak time. So at peak time, like between uh, 6.30 p.m. and 10 p.m., that is when everyone is active. People are cooking, people are ironing, people are lighting their homes. Uh, there are several people in the home, so there are several lights that are on. Those are the contributors to the evening peak. The industries, the big industries continue 24 hours, and therefore the 1,700 is part of this 2,170. Uh, the offices go off at about 5. So they are not part of the 2,170. In the night then, it is only those 24-hour industries that remain consuming plus security lighting, which takes minimum supply and street lighting. In the morning, the 5 a.m. to about 8 a.m. peak is again domestic activity. As people wake up, they take showers, they iron their clothes, they light their houses as they are doing their morning activities. And then as they leave to work, we remain with the minimum day consumption in the domestic places. And we move to the offices where the consumption goes on. Generally, that is the pattern. 
and it is a, a clear daily pattern. Saturday afternoon, it goes lower because some of the SMEs close down on Saturday and they don't open up until Monday. So Saturday afternoon and Sunday night, the consumption is usually much, much lower at about the 1700, which happens during the week. Let's talk a bit about the reserve capacity and why it's very low. This reserve capacity has been quite low for a couple of years uh, from what I get. And are there maybe some measures that are being taken to expand it a bit? Yes, generation planning is a very intricate activity. And planning in the current regulatory regime, the Energy Act number one of 2019, provides that the Ministry of Energy is in charge of planning. And in the energy sector, in the electricity sector, which is prepared and approved by the Ministry of Energy, prepared by the energy sector player in close consultation, looking at the dynamics of the country and the plans of the country, and therefore working on generation plans, transmission plans, and distribution plans. The least cost power development plan has provision for generation. However, in generation, the resources required to develop generation are quite hefty, are quite heavy. And sometimes the budgetary requirement is not provided for, and therefore some of the generation plans are pushed along the road. There have been some times where decisions have been made to freeze, for example, on boarding of generation. Looking at it from a, a simplistic point of view, you'd say if our peak demand is 2,100 and our supply is 2,300, we are okay. We really are not okay because there are other dynamics that play in that area. Some of the dynamics being the location where the generation is and the location where peak consumption is. So the least cost power development plan really does have plans for generation. It looks at a 40-year trajectory, which is a very long time. But we keep in mind the knowledge that generation development takes time. It can take up to 10 to 15 years to actualize generation, which means a lot of work goes on behind the scenes before you see a generation plant plugged into the network. Now, there have been delays, some delays caused by freezes in onboarding of new generation, freezes in approving some of these generating plants coming in. And when those freezes occur, then it means you push the generation further down the line. And that really has an impact in our capacity as we speak. So 2,300 and 2,170 is not a good place to be, but there are plans now to onboard additional generation, both from imports and from generating plants being implemented in the country to improve that magic. More often than not, when uh, Kenyans realize that Kenya power exists, it's when there's a blackout. Now, so what exactly most likely causes that blackout? You've talked about the reserve capacity being quite low, uh, the demands are spiking sometimes. And then the last blackout happened on a Sunday when demand is supposed to be very low. So maybe you can speak about the dynamics that happens when a blackout happens in various parts of the country. When it comes to blackouts, and it's important to understand how the grid operates. With electricity, it is consumed as you generate. And they have to maintain that delicate balance between supply or dispatching the generation and the demand. And at any one given moment, the system controllers are maintaining that balance. And consider we have a generation mix, which has the location of where the generation is and the location of where the load is. There could be distances. For example, say the major generation is around Okaria and also around the Hydros, which is the seven force. But what happens when probably there is poor hydrology and we don't have enough water to generate power. You find that now we become more of a dependent on the geothermal 
and other sources. And here we also have the wind and we have the solar, which is intermittent in its nature. One moment you may have strong winds, the next moment you have no wind. So you have a drop of generation right from 400 megawatts to something less than 100 megawatts in a minute. Or you may have solar generating at 150 megawatts and the next few seconds, the power and needed generation has dropped to something less than 50 megawatts. So to maintain the balance within those systems is normally a delicate situation. And because now the power, the much power which is flowing from one point going to another, in case of a hole, on one point of the transmission network or even on a generation, probably we lose a generator for one reason or another. It causes a shock in the system. And because it's one interconnected mesh across the country, based on now the, the protection schemes which are meant to segregate those ports, based on the magnitude of the lost lot, the lost generation, then it brings the dynamics on how the grid is going to behave. And as it is now, the grid redundancy, it's not exactly in the optimal level where we want it to be. Because the grid should be such a way that in case we lose one link, there is an alternative where that power can flow and sufficiently flow to serve the low senders. If we lose one generation, there should be another available spare or spinning reserve to pick up quickly that amount of generation which has been lost by another generator. So as Engineer Rosemary has said, investment in generation takes time. Also investment in transmission network is capital intensive. We have made straight, but we are not there. If I have to point to the last blackouts which have happened, and yes, the costs happen to be in West Kenya where we lose one link. And as we lose one link in this case, Kisumu Moroni link, the power to South Coast, which happens to flow through that link, is starts looking for an alternative. And as it tries to look for an alternative, it finds the alternative route, which is quite loaded and cannot take the full load or the full capacity which was being carried by that existing or that link which you have lost. And the grid is configured such a way that is self-protective in the event that it is of a stretch in case instead of carrying overload to a point of failure, it disconnects to self-preserve because you'd rather get to disconnect the supply than have the equipment damage and take longer to bring it up. The grid constraints in terms of the capacity in some links, not everywhere, but in some links tend to make the grid not to be so flexible to have power flow in alternative routes and in a manner which will still sustain the loads and will all will sustain the generation evacuation. That's where you find if we lose a major uh, demand or major load sender, now the generator get to run to over frequency and for protection, they trip so that they don't get damaged. In the event we lose a generation, meaning that then the demand is more than the available generation, if the other available generators are not able to pick that load, then the load will get knocked off by what we call under frequency load shaping so that it stabilizes the system. So it's a quite, quite intricate arrangement to maintain the grid and the resilience and grid security requires a complex investment from rate seeing it from generation to the transmission to the distribution. I hope I've 
given mm-hmm. in a more elaborate manner. Yes, I feel so. But then is there a control center somewhere in the country where someone is switching off and switching on certain parts of the country? And also how is the grid connected? Is, there, is, it, is it like a central place where you're managing all these or is it distributed across the country? Okay, a good question. We have our two levels of control. We have the national control center, which looks at the dark grid and also manages now the generator. Then we have regional control centers, which are controlling parts of the region. And in this case, we have six regional control centers. We have one in Mombasa, in Mombasa we call it Rabai. We have another one looking at Mount Kenya region based in Nyeri. We have another one in Nairobi looking at Nairobi and the environs. Then we have Nakuru, which we call Lanet. We have North Rift based in Lesos. And we have another control center for the Western and South Nyanza based in Kisumu. But all these control centers work in coordination to monitor and control the grid together. That's how our control centers are organized. And then maybe one more question before I open up to the public. IPPs, what's the role of IPPs in all this power sector? I I think I could come in there. Yes, Rosemary. And take Kenyans to 2000, the year 2000 or thereabout, where we had a very serious drought. And we, at that point, only had Kenja as our generator. And that drought led to a deficit in supply of electricity. And therefore, the only alternative that was available in the country then was to load shed. I remember we did very massive load shedding. Load shedding is just switching off some parts of the load so that uh, the little available generation suffice the remaining part of the load. For example, if we needed 1,000 in total and the generation was only 800, then we would switch off 200 of the load and then now serve the 800. So we put in a schedule where some towns would be put off on alternate days of the week so that the generation that was available would suffice the towns that would be left on. And a discussion was held by government with the manufacturers on, do we look for us as a solution? Um, an interim solution that will lead to the the cost of the electricity being higher, but that electricity being available? Or do we maintain our situation where then you have no power, but when you do have the power, it is uh, less costly? And a decision was reached then in consultation with the manufacturers that we are better off having the electricity, which is slightly at a higher uh, cost, than not having it at all. It had a very huge impact to that load shedding program to industry and to small enterprises as well. I remember welders would have to do their welding in the night because the next day or the next two days they would be off and therefore it was a big struggle. So when that decision was made, government then went ahead and contracted some emergency power generation. The emergency power generation was imported very quickly and installed within, I think, about six, seven months, and then we were able to have everybody having electricity, although the cost was slightly higher. In that same arrangement, it was agreed that we go out and open up the generation space so that we would have private people also participating in that space because of the resources required to develop generation. Now, to speed up that generation, thermal was taken up as the alternative source of generation to be onboarded to enable us have supply. So that is how we got in the independent power producers, Iba Africa, Savo Power, 
trials power, thicker power. And they were brought in again. The least cost power development plan was reviewed in view of that occurrence of the drought to enable us on board some of these thermal plants in the interim period, even as we develop additional generation in the geothermal and the hydro area. So IPPs have played a very critical part in enabling us give supply to Kenyans in this interim period as the cheaper generation is being developed. Long term, the plan is that we will retire all these thermal plants as we generate using the renewable energy source, that is wind, solar, and geothermal and hydro. So they play a very critical role right now. As we have mentioned, our peak demand is 2,170. At peak, we have about 2,300. Part of this would be thermal mostly. You note that we had some drought early this year. We had such severe drought that the hydros, we got to a point where the hydros were not producing at all, the big hydros. We only had quail, which still had adequate capacity to generate. So in those moments then, if we didn't have the IPPs, then we would not have generation. A lot of business would suffer heavily by being load shed. That would be the only other alternative. A quick question, um, especially on IPPs, uh, is there a time frame within which they were sub supposed to be retired? Because this is almost 23 years after 2000. So since it was top stop measure, perhaps it could have uh, scaled up a bit. So that in 2023, we're not relying on them again. And then a quick question also is, uh, what percentage of the total power supply is uh, coming from IPPs? Let, 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 me, let me take the first part. When, when you look at the cost of generation, and the cost of hauling, it is very resource heavy. It is quite resource heavy to put in a generating plant, even a thermal plant. And therefore, when you do the costing structure to make it reasonable to the users, reasonable to the country, you have to spread that cost over many years. A lot of the power production agreements are usually about 40 years or so, five to 40 years. That makes sense for the plant. That makes sense for the country and the end user. If you shortened the PPA period, then it means the cost would be very high to the country or to the consumer for you to be able to meet the cost of that power supply. So 35, 40 years, some of them are now getting to the end of their life and the least cost power development plan has no intention of keeping the thermals. And especially now that we are talking about looking at our environment and going green in our generation, the intention is to retire them as they reach their end of uh, PPA period, as we onboard the geothermals, which have now been developed, and the hydros and the wind and solars. Maybe, uh, Rafa, you could speak to the second part of the question. I can. Yes, I can. And that is the component which IPPs are contributing. Enough times when we talk of IPPs, people be clear, their minds go to thermals or to the diesel uh, generators. But interestingly, IPPs are across the different generation resources. And just to give you a, a quick picture, when it comes to hydros, we have some small hydros, the KTDAs and others, which generate, but not much, total 11 megawatts, cumulatively, but they are spread across. When it comes to thermos, that, okay, well, that's what Rosemary was talking about, the Iber-Africas and all that, they have 392 megawatt on the thermos, 
And remember, so Kipevu has a thermal plant with 120 megawatts. Kitchen that is. Also, we have IPPs in Geodamo, and specifically, we have our power in Okaria, and we have another one we call Socian. Cumulatively, the geothermals are being done by IPPs have a cumulative capacity of 185 megawatts. So when you combine this, also we have wind, wind, we have Kenjan with 25 megawatts, but the IPP happened to be the largest with 410 megawatts. And we have also solar with the most of all the solar plants are by IPPs totaling 190 megawatts. So when you add all this, you find that the IPPs are having an installed capacity of 1,190 megawatts, which is around 30 to 40% of the total installed capacity. So that is how the generation by IPPs look like. And then at the end of their lives, are these plants supposed to be handed over to government or what's the plan there? Okay, what happens, you find that with every plan and every PPA normally have its how it will be handled by end of life. So it's case by case dependent. But ideally at the end of life, if there is no extension of the IPP, ideally the plant is meant to be decommissioned. That is the provision. I think we've done 45 minutes. Well, I have more questions. Seems like there's a lot of interest in the public. The first one I see here is about the power production. There are businesses that have set up their own power plants now to be able to especially generate solar. In the past year, we've seen a couple of those. What's the relationship between you and them? Do they supply excess power to their grid, they add, or how does that work for such independent companies like that, which have applied and got approval for their solar power plants? Currently, uh, we have uh, regulations under the Energy Act that are under preparation and upon approval, there will be a provision for selling to the grid excess power. But currently the regulations haven't been worked out and therefore those that are generating on their own generate for their own use and they only use grid when their own use is not adequate to for them, but they don't sell to us excesses. But the regulations are uh, soon going to be approved, and then there will be a mechanism for them selling to us. That will also create an issue in the grid, because as they sell to us, the grid has to be strong enough to receive that generation. The grid needs to be in such a way that generation will then be able to be efficiently transported to a use area which means then there will be a lot of technical calculations that will be taken into consideration before we get to that net metering of customers where they, they are selling to us and we are selling to them and that excess is able to be used by the grid. It is not a, a direct relationship where if you have excess, you just push it into the grid and it is usable. For example, if the immediate transformer next to you cannot take the energy that you want to push into the grid, then it means we can't push it into the grid. We have to reconfigure that grid near your place. If the line serving you can't take additional load, then that line has to be redone for it to be able to take that additional load. So for now, we don't have the regulations in place, but these are being worked on and are soon going to be released. And the modalities will be worked on how they can sell back to us and then how we charge each other for that sale of uh, extra electricity. But do you encourage this or do you discourage it? Strictly speaking, we are working towards having the grid, having adequate supply. And that would be a better arrangement than having uh, many different sources generating in a disorganized way, if I could call it, into the grid. 
that sometimes can be disruptive. There have been instances where people have inadvertently let that extra energy come into the grid and it causes disruption because one, we were already supplying that grid at that point and now it brings in this additional supply and therefore it causes a problem on the network. But on the other hand, there is a stabilizing effect if this is done in a controlled way. If there's a generation at the far end of our network, then that generation will have a stabilizing effect of that line by bringing in that direct generation nearer where the consumers are, perhaps than where the current generation point is. So technically speaking, there are pros and cons and balances have to be worked out so that we actualize this. It is something that we cannot say we will close our eyes and bury our heads in the sand. It's a reality that is happening. A lot of people are going into self-generation for various reasons. Some international companies want to use 100% clean energy. Ours still has a component of thermal. We cannot stop them. Others have different considerations in, in, in their own plans as uh, organizations. And so we will work on a win situation where whatever is excess and comes into the grid comes uh, smoothly into the grid and supports the gap that there is in generation at that point or in stabilization of the grid. You spoke about earlier this year having a drought, and then now there was quite a lot of water and rains in the country, and then suddenly we had this overflow, kind of some of these uh, dams. Could you speak to why Kenyans usually wonder we are having rains and then at the same time have power blackouts? They usually don't understand that. Could you explain a bit what's the connection there, or if there is one? Okay, if I can comment on that, power blackout causes is not necessarily about an availability of generation. As I explained, that if a fault occurs on any point, the system will try to reconfigure itself, both the generation as well as the, the transmission and the loads where they are to ensure that the grid uh, continues to stand. Yes, enough times it does so. If there is a problem on the feeder which is serving where you live, if there is a problem, is able to isolate that feeder. There are situations where the fault can affect a big area, but get to understand that if the system is shaken, then even when you have sufficient generation, we can still experience partial blackout, either localized or affecting a big area. Get to, to differentiate this. When we have under generation, then we'll try to knock off the loads to balance the generation and the demand. In that case, that is what engineer Rosemary was calling load shedding. But there is a situation where we have a blackout, not because there was not enough generation, but it's because of a fault occurring on a line for one reason or another, hence isolating a section, either a small one or a larger area. But get to know this, hydrology, good hydrology, draws happens to be one of them, the stable or good generation sources, which provide grid stability compared to the other sources. So whenever there is enough water, we maximize on that. And then you talked a bit about spar transmission. So I think the latest power blackout was laid out to an issue around transmission. Could you speak about... Uh, how our transmission works, and then especially when you're importing, how do you import? No, because you can't carry it as a good. It has to be connected to a grid. Uh, how do you do that? Maybe speak that. Okay. 
as I explained, as we are beginning, for a grid is composed of generation points or generation plants, then transmission lines to evacuate that power and take it to the load centers. And then we need to have the demand or the load centers, wherever they are. So the transmission lines happens now to be the carriers of this power from where it is being generated to where it's being uh, supplied. I get to take note of this. All the lines, all this is interconnected. And as of today, we are interconnected with our neighbors, Uganda, and we are interconnected with Ethiopia. And soon we are finalizing our interconnection with Tanzania. And when we are interconnected, there will be the need, the energy exchange, all the arrangements which you will have to import. Like, for example, we have an arrangement with Ethiopia to import up to 200 megawatt. For Uganda, it's about energy exchange. We can give them, sometimes they can give us. So when this grid or this transmission is happening, power is flowing based on what is required where, and all these generations are putting all this energy into the grid. And once it gets to the grid, you can't segregate and say, this is from this or this is from this or It becomes one electricity serving the loads wherever they are. So if there is a problem on one end, yes, we have protection system to ensure that that is segregated and it's sorted out, localized and minimized any disturbance. But sometimes there are instances where the impact is bigger and we have uh, challenges. Thank you for that. Now, in an ideal situation, therefore, you need the transmission lines not to carry to capacity. You need them to operate with a margin, such that in the event that there's a disturbance on one end, then the load shifts to the other line and the system continues operating. But we have also not invested well in our transmission network due to resource constraints in the country and delays of some projects, some facing uh, legal issues. And therefore, we find our lines carrying almost to their capacity, which means in the event that another line falls off, then the remaining line is unable to carry what the fallen line was carrying. And naturally, that then leads into a system disturbance. The ideal situation which we are working on, or the Ministry of Energy is working on, is to get the power network so solid that at, uh, at peak time it carries with a margin enough to transfer the load if one line has an issue. That is the best way to have a transmission network with the system controllers continually balancing what load is in which line, which generation source is coming in, which one is being reduced so that the load is able to be supplied uh, seamlessly with the generation that is available. Maybe to the public, if you want to engage in the conversation, if you participate, a couple of uh, ways you can do that. So one, you can just send your questions. I see a lot of questions. We'll try to answer as many of them as possible. And if not, in the new year, we'll bring them back again to answer your question. Below the pinned tweet, you can just type your question. And secondly, you can just DM us your questions. But also third, you can just ask to speak. But usually we prefer if you have a name uh, and at least a picture we can recognize so that we can avoid having too many uh, trolls around. In the meantime, there are lots of questions that have come in, so I'm going to read them. And Raphael and Rosemary, just feel free to uh, pop in and just answer any of the questions. So one from a good friend, they're asking if the power goes out and their fridge goes kaput, what do you do? Does Kenya Power reimburse or at least try to make whole their consumer once they make some losses through this, uh, the power blackout and all. 
yes, if, if there was an issue with your supply and due to that issue, there was a damage of equipment, then you would report to our nearest county office that uh, you have suffered an equipment damage and uh, it is due to an inconsistency in the power supply. We would then look at our logs of the issues that have happened on the power supply and whether there was an issue on the time and uh, day that you are indicating that you lost your equipment. And if there is adequate collaboration that, yes, there was a power surge in that location on that day and time, then we would take you through a process. You'd have to make a formal report and uh, provide some documentation for proof. And then we would take you through a compensation process. But the big thing is when you have power outages, it is critical to report that outage and get a reference number. We have a 24-7 operating contact center, 9771, where you can call and make a report of a power outage or any irregularity that you're noting in the power system. Alternatively, you can use our USSD star 977-HASH, which uh, then prompts you and you can go ahead and report your power outage or the irregularity in the power system. These would be some of the things that we would be referring to when we are looking at, was there an outage in the area? Was there an incidence in the area could have caused the damage? Of course, sometimes we get some uh, fraudulent requests for, for us making good damages and they can't be corroborated with an issue in the power system. But there are times when there are genuine issues where equipment has been damaged because of an incident in the power supply system. And as I've said, we will take you through the process of having that uh, corrected and made good. Now, a question here that has come in about ITPs again, and the costs of, uh, when you look at the annual report, especially of Kenya Power, you notice that IPPs, uh, uh, their energy is a bit more, it's quite way more expensive when you compare to, let's say, generation from Kenjin. Someone is asking, do you prioritize in terms of cost when you're getting energy from some of these suppliers? Now, if your demand is about some, a certain level and then you want supply to be at a certain level, then do you say, okay, want the cheapest uh, power first in and then we look at the others or how does that go? And on that note, someone is asking the allegations that you prioritize IPPs sometimes and the IPPs are a bit more costly to the consumer. So then the end consumer gets to pay a bit more. So maybe you can speak to that. Okay. I can probably comment on the first one, then Rosemary can do on the other one. When it comes to prioritization, yes, we do. And there is something, when we are dispatching energy, we have merit order. We are, we start with the least cost, the, the cheap and the progressively going uh, to, to, to the more expensive sources. But remember, as we said, during the peak, now we are forced to dispatch the thermos, which are more expensive than other sources like hydro. And we call them the peaking generation. It is only to take care of that short period of peak. And when we, we, we get to, to go back now to the cheaper cost, or when now the load drops, then we get to, to need to stop them. So when you come to speculate now the average cost, and you like now with Kenjiodamos and Hydros where we are running as base load and the unit costs, yes, it, it, it's cheaper. You find that if you calculate the average per unit, it will be cheaper. But now come the ones which we use only for picking and the way that the way the PPS are structured, we have 
from there we call capacity charge, that's an energy charge. The capacity charge is constant, whether you are dispatching or not. So if you take the total cost of the invoice value and you average by the units which they dispatch, even when Kenjin has capacity charge on their generators, because the capacity charge is spread over more units, then the cost per unit will look less. But when you get now the PPS because they are dispatched for shorter period, then when you take the average cost, then the dispatch merit order. And for your information, every day with 24-hour dispatch, need dispatch schedule is shared with IPRA. And also we give a report every day of how we dispatch the previous day. So everything is done above board. I don't know whether, Rosemary, you have something to add. Yes, I, I could just add one more thing. We have said that gener generation from our hydros and especially from the seven forks are the cheapest. Why are they the cheapest? The plants are mostly more than 40 years old and therefore they have mostly been depreciated. So we are no longer paying for the plants themselves. We just pay for maintenance. And of course, water just flows along the river. So the cost of generation using the hydros is minimal. And it may not be a, a direct comparison, comparing it with a plant where we are still meeting the investment on the plant, as well as the generation and maintenance cost. So it may look like the, the, the cost of hydro is so low, but it is simply because the plant has paid off fully. And therefore now we are only meeting the minimal maintenance and the generation cost. But as Raphael has rightly put it, we stick to the merit order, which prioritizes the cheapest sources. This chip is not just cheap in shillings. It has to be looked at technically where that source is, where the loads are on that day, how we will transport that energy to the load centers so that we are able to meet then the demand of the country. But we stick to the merit order and dispatch the cheapest technically feasible source at any one time. Lots of questions here. One question is about now if you have agreements as SLAs with consumers. Yes, we do. We, we do have a customer chat. We stipulate our service level agreements. It is public. It is there on our website. It is publicly displayed in our offices. And we have a, a timeline for restoration of supply for outages that are normal in nature or outages that require just a response and minimal investment in restoration. In the charter, we have also indicated where there's an outage, where there's a big equipment failure, then we would discuss with the customers and give them a reasonable timeline within which we'll be able to offer the service. So for all the services that we offer, we have stipulated in the customer charter how long it should take to offer the service. It is an area of improvement. We are still not there because one, the network, we have not invested enough in it. Two, we are not as well resourced as we would love to be. So it is a work in progress for us, but we have guidelines on how long we should take action and how long we should respond to the various issues of supply. That notwithstanding, we still strive to do better than the charter stipulates. For example, in city centers, we say when you're off supply, we should have you back within four hours and in the rural areas within eight hours if it doesn't have major equipment failures, we still strive to restore the supply in less than that. But electricity being so close to our utilization and having moved in our lifestyles to be very dependent on electricity, even an hour's outage causes really pain to our customers and we are cognizant of that. 
And that is why we are continually improving in our service delivery to our customers. Lots of questions here from especially Demao. I have, he has nine questions. So I'll, I'll select a few and then the rest will send the, them to you later so that you can be able to have a look. So one is if we are producing surplus away from peak consumption areas, uh, why not invest in transmission instead of investing in IPPs? Now, it could be a question he's asking. Are we currently investing in IPPs? We are, we are investing in generation in transmission and in distribution. And in all these investments, some of it is being carried by private investors and some of it is being carried out by government. The independent power producers meet the investment cost of the generation. And so they are not an evil to us. They are necessary in fast tracking our generation because government has so much resource. If we only depended on the resources that are available in government and in, in credit from maybe DFIs, then we may not be able to meet the needs of our country. And that is why strategically the generation front was opened up to private players as well as government. So the government continues to invest very heavily in generation, but there are also private investors. What we are not taking now is thermal generation. So yes, there will be IPPs, as he has mentioned. There's all power, there's the wind generators, there are the solar generators who are private and with whom we enter into agreements and then they, they develop their plants and supply us at the agreed rate. So we still continue with the, the two fronts, Kengen for government and IPPs for additional generation, but not in the thermal generation area. There's a question here, more, maybe more technical. Say this, do we have an N1 contingency in our grid or something transmission level? I do not know what N1 contingency is, so maybe you guys are more technical here. Rafael, you could take that. Okay. Yes. When we talk of N-1 contingency, it refers to having a redundancy in the transmission grid such that at N1 time, you can afford to take out one line for maintenance or for any other, or in case of a fault, and still the grid will be able to serve and serve adequately. Even apply to transformers, you have the capability of the transformers to take one unit out for maintenance work, and the remaining units, the N number, will continue to carry uh, sufficiently the load which is meant to carry. Is it now, I can say that we are not fully in having the N minus one contingency. In some areas, yes. And in some other areas, no. And hence, when we talked of grid constraints, we talked of now these areas where we lack such contingency. On IPPs, it's a, there's a lot of questions on IPPs and how that's going. So Maude is asking, first of all, there's a question he has on power storage. Do we have storage options and what is BES best project? Maybe I could go on that. Our initial power plants, solar generating power plants, the one at the point where these agreements were being reached, Storage was still very expensive. And so it didn't make sense to add storage to the generation. So we have solar generation, wind generation without storage. Battery storage, which is the BES, eh? this battery storage, one is getting better. Technologies are improving. Capacities are improving. We are now able to get huge battery storages of 100 megawatts, 200 megawatts. Previously, that was not possible. 
the technologies were such that to have such huge storage, you would need a lot of space and chances of fault and uh, having the battery storage uh, damaged were very high. The kind of developments in battery storage now is such that you can have modular battery storage where if there's damage in one module, then you can remove that module and replace it. So with the improvement in battery storage going forward, the strategy is that intermittent supplies like the wind, which can go off from 300 to zero in a minute, we will have them together with battery storage so that then they're smoother. The solars, we will onboard them together with battery storage so that when the solar is high, the battery stores the energy. And when this cloud cover or when nighttime reaches, you still are able to get that energy from the battery. But having said that, there's a second twist to it. Conversion of energy from one form to another introduces losses. In fact, generating energy and then storing it and then releasing it back, you lose 30% of it. So there will be quite some calculations and some considerations to be made as we get fully into that battery energy storage space. Maybe Rafael, you want to add anything else? Yes, I may just want to commend, yeah, now with the, with the technology maturing and all that, as a country, we are keen. Well, Kenjan, a few weeks ago, was appointed as the agent to drive this agenda in partnership with World Bank. And now they are planning to undertake visibility studies of the grid and where are the potential locations to need to implement this technology. Yes, we are running with it as a country and Kenjan is the is a champion. And in addition, there will be something else in that grid storage. For example, if you generated at Olkaria, and then we have battery storage in Nairobi, we will have bought that power from you in Olkaria. So some technical and economic decision will have to be reached on how then we treat that generation when now it comes from this battery in Nairobi back again to the same grid through which it was already transported and paid for. So there, there, there will be quite a bit of... Uh, technical and economic discussions around the battery storage as it matures in the country. Someone is asking about, uh, when you talked about installed capacity, we have little in the way of uh, uh, slack in the system. What would be the ideal or optimal installed capacity that we should have so that we don't have blackouts in the country as it is currently? Rule of thumb generally, we talk about not installed, we talk about available capacity versus demand a margin of 15%, just rule of thumb. So uh, available, which we, we stand at 2,300 now versus demand of 2,170, we would need 15% above 2,170, which would be about 350. Yeah, 350 300 above, yeah. above 2,170 for us to be at a fair place of comfort. There are some people who go even above that to 20, 25% for a bigger slack and for a better N minus one. And in terms of plans ahead, do you foresee that happening in the near future? Because uh, I think Western Kenya have been told to prepare for blackouts in a way, like uh, load shading. Maybe you can speak about that and going forward and what consumers should expect in terms of generation. Is, are there a project, right, the pipeline that will be able to help out on this? Okay, can Ivan can comment? Yes, there's uh, what Cynthia Rosemary talked about, the least cost power development plan, which does projections up to 40 years. And this least cost power development plans for generation, transmission, to evacuate that power, and also for distribution to where and out the loads will be projected 
load growth and all that. The question now would be, are we going to keep pace with the investment to be able to meet this criteria? Yes, a lot of capacity is being done around the geothermal more exploration reserves. We have the project like the Grand Force, which at the UK had an interest in the other day, and I need the hydros. And yes, there are other projects which are lined up. The question is, when are they coming through? That is what I can comment. Rosemary. I would just want to add that it is critical for infrastructure projects. It is critical to stick with the plan and to plan long term and not be swayed by the current happenings and by emotional thoughts. Like just uh, top of the head, someone would say, we have 3,000, our need is 2170, we have enough. I think as a nation, we need to really stick to that technically sound and economically sound planning and implementation so that we don't fall back. Where we are now is a product of some knee-jerk reactions along the way, coupled with some underinvestment in the last few years, which has reached us where we are. We know of countries in Africa even, I will not mention them, which are suffering heavily now. And that suffering is not something that you can alleviate in a day or two or in a month or in a year. That suffering will take time for it to even just be normalized. So I think it is critical for us as a nation to stick with the plan, to strive to resource the plan so that we don't fall back because falling back is really expensive. In the meantime, we're also looking at interim things that we can do in the short term to alleviate that pain in the Southern Nyanza particularly perhaps to do some distribution interconnections. They may not be perfect. They may help reduce the pain, but we also look at the long-term plan very critically. Our sister company, Ketraco, is, is, is on course with this, with support from the Ministry of Energy, so that we have the transmission lines, the critical transmission lines completed in the shortest time possible to finally solve that bit and even resolve the other constraints that are leading us to not have the N-1 criterion for the network. Just to make a comment uh, regarding South Nyanza, it's not about a generation capacity issue. It's about constraint on the transmission link to South Nyanza, whose capacity has been surpassed by the demand downstream. And that is what Engineer Rosemary was talking about, was tracking the projects, the transmission projects, so that we can unlock that. But we expect once these projects are done, that is the narrow bomet link, so that we can have power flow directly from the Ocaria complex to South Nyanza through Bomet Kisi. And also the other project which is ongoing from Dewa, that is through Dewa in the Upper Bay side, so that we have alternative route to the famous link, the Moroni Chemosit link, which happens to be the bottleneck. So once these projects, and they are really on a fast track lane, so that we get to have them come as fast as possible. But to mention, because of that, we are not shading, but we draw a schedule and to ensure that we don't inconvenience our customers every day, but we draw a schedule to manage uh, the extra load during peak only, in the evening peak. So it's not like a massive load shading as may have been portrayed, but it is a structure not shady just to manage the overloads uh, on that particular link. Do you have an idea on how many days they would be out or is that still in the works and when may this start? Okay, this has been ongoing. It's not like it's starting. This has been ongoing. It's only now that they 
the CS put it out there to look like it's something which is going to begin. But we have some uh, quick fixes which we are running with, which we intend to manage within six months to really alleviate the pain it has is the major transmission line as I've mentioned, Narok, Bomet, and Sondu Dewa get completed probably within 24 months. But we are doing the short, quick fixes on the, on the distribution line links. So then we do add a 3KB from Narok to Bomet and provide uh, some route. But now because the capacity is low, 10 megawatt. And the other links, we are doing Miwani, Haero to have an alternative. And we are also doing another link from an area called Jepsion to Kericho. So that we have an alternative source of a substation we call Makutano in Damaravin. So these are interventions which we are running with and we are cognizant of the inconvenience we are causing. With this, within uh, six months, this short-term quick fixes will be effective and the pain will be quite less. There are a couple of questions here. Um, maybe a, a general question about bottlenecks in the system. Uh, so if you look at our... How great as it is. So here are some of the challenges that maybe as Kenya Power you experience in terms of providing optimal energy to the public uh, so that people can be a bit more understanding, especially when they're power blackouts. Since you're more consumer facing, you face most of the backlash in terms of if there is a blackout. Uh, so maybe you can speak to the challenges you yourselves are facing and what are some of the, especially in the current plan that was launched, I think last week or the week before, what are some of the things that you have inside now for consumers going forward? Generous, Mary, you can go. Oh, yes. The, the, the plan focuses on strengthening of our grid as one of the areas of focus for us. Strengthening of the grid will improve the power flow, and this will have a positive effect on the power supply. Because when you move the supply in longer distances, you have higher losses of energy as you transport it. When you reconfigure the network so that the network is more efficient, in transporting the power, you reduce the losses. That then would reflect in fairer costing of the supply. We are looking at smartening of the grid. When smarten the grid, then some of those outages would take less time to address. Because when you have a smarter grid, then at the control level, you are able to see the network and to take action on the network faster than when it is not smart and you have to physically take care of the issues that are happening on the grid. We are looking to investing to a good extent on the distribution network as well. The distribution network sometimes has weaknesses which then continue to cause distress as the network falls or as the network is not able to carry the optimal capacity or as the network is not strong enough to supply what the customers require. So we are looking in the strategy to investing heavily on the network so that we have power supply security, even as we work with our sister company, Ketraco, in fast tracking of the transmission projects that are in the pipeline and are in the least cost power development plan. We are looking to making our customer interaction with us also better. Sometimes some customers stay off supply for longer periods because they have not reported and we don't have visibility of the distress they have. So we are working towards improving the tools with which we will communicate with our customers, improving the pace of that communication getting to us so that then we are also able to respond 
in a quick way. The biggest is investment in the network, smart investment in the network, so that we are able to serve our customers better and respond faster to the network issues and to have a robust network which is able to transport the supply from the generation points to the final consumption points. And I would like just to add as we do what we do, we are cognizant of climate change and whatever we do and the initiatives which we are taking, we are having sustainability in the center of the consideration and we are aligned to the agenda of net zero emissions as we do our business. Someone here wants to ask a question, so I'll restrict you to two questions. Gulen, then we should be winding up. I'll, I'll be quick, there are a couple of questions. One is uh, related with clean energy over-reliance uh, for Kenya issue. And the other one is related to the untapped opportunities for the carbon in relation to the energy transition in Africa. Will be, as Rafael uh, earlier said, uh, clean energy is intermittent, means it, is, it comes and goes based on the, the availability of this wind and solar and sun. That means it's not 100% reliable. In order to make it reliable, you need two things. One is a modern infrastructure of the grid to manage the power supply and demand. The other part is to invest the, the storage, as uh, Rosemary, uh, Rosemary talked about it, is the battery and all that. that. And that's also a cost. Now, in addition to these things, two things comes with the clean energy issue, Kenya. One is 80% is a renewable energy. So 58% of that comes, 58% of the uh, Kenya uh, energy comes uh, imported from Ethiopia. That itself is an energy security. As Ethiopia, when those dams, water level goes down, basically it shuts off and says, thank you guys, I'll keep this, whatever I'm sending now, I'll, I'll use it. So that's one issue. The other issue is the livelihood. And then, and what I mean is that cost of uh, energy kilowatt hour. Sometimes when you look and compare those independent power providers, the amount they are selling to the Kenyans is so costly that some of them even same as a Mokuducho power, right, in, in Somalia. The other part which I just want to finalize is in terms of the livelihood is on this one is that, for example, Kenya GDP in, as part of the manufacturing in 2020 has improved only 4% since 1972. And that's partially is because of lack of energy availability or energy property on that one. Taiwan, for example, electricity consumption per capita in 1972 was 1,000 kilowatts per hour. Today, Kenyan consumption per capita is somewhere 180 to 300 kilowatts per hour. That's itself an issue. So that is the clean energy issue. The other part, if I go back to the value chain of carbon credit, President Rutu, I think, proposed a, a good plan in Kenya, which is amazing in Africa. He's the first president in Africa who said, I want to make Kenya a carbon credit exporter is really good. But unfortunately in Kenya, there is no policy implementation or, or, or for mechanism to implement those ones. What I mean by that is, for example, if Kenya comes up with a Kenyan carbon credit authority that issues a renewable energy certificate that verifies that's a value chain, then on the top of that, these renewable energy certificates can be converted to commodity carbon credit tokenization that can be traded in the blockchain technology, which Kenya is really picking up, or can be traded as a commodity in Nairobi Stock Exchange or New York Stock Exchange. That's where I was seeing that. Is there some policy coming up on that one? Thank you so much. Did you get the questions, Rafael and Rosemary? Rafael, you want to go first? You can go, Rosemary. Thank you very much, Gulan, for those very good questions. 
I, I think the figures that you got for Ethiopia is not correct. They are not giving us 58% of energy. Hydro in total is uh, 839, uh, the installed capacity. The effective capacity is 810. Ethiopia is currently giving us, uh, during peak 200 and off, I think, 65, which is not uh, 58% of, of capacity. That notwithstanding, there is good balance in terms of sources of energy, in terms of where we get the energy from. A lot of economic studies are done. A lot of technical studies are done. The least cost power development plan is not just a plan of amounts of energy randomly placed there. The sources are considered. The locations of those sources are considered. The mix is considered so that we have a good mix in our energy mix so that we have longevity. Yeah. Raphael mentioned that we have sustainability as a very key goal. Africa and Eastern Africa now is getting into regional trading blocks and that includes energy. So contributing is a good thing for us to have. As we develop our sources, we will also have an opportunity of export in the future. We don't want to get to that future and find that we don't have an interconnected transmission network with which we would want to trade at that point in time. In the current situation, we are importing from Ethiopia, this connectivity currently being pursued with Tanzania. And so the flow of energy will be regional and not just with one neighbor. The advantage of a regional transmission network is it is more robust, it is stronger, and it is able then to even absorb more of the shocks. Because then if there's a deficit in one side of the network, then the power flow will come in. And with solid agreements to manage that power flow, we will be better. On the intermittent sources, yes, you are right. We can't over-rely on intermittent sources and this uh, very careful consideration now, but battery storage is becoming less and less expensive. I would say it's becoming cheap. It's becoming less and less expensive and having battery storage, a study has already been done. As Raphael mentioned, Kenjen has already been commissioned to champion the, the development of the battery storage in the country and we see this becoming a win. The losing of the wind very suddenly, the losing of the solars suddenly and intermittently across the day, those will be things that this will be able to resolve and that will increase our energy security. Clean energy is the way to go and of course we are going there very careful and with our eyes not leaving the cost of energy position. So all these things are being done with the cost and a desire to have cost reduction but careful not to Take it so low and then lead to Kenyans not having the energy in itself. It is worse not to have the energy than to have the energy at some cost for now, even as we develop further. If you look at our strategic plan that we launched, carbon credit trading is one of our views. And we'll be looking at the framework as it is developed in the country. We will, of course, be very actively involved in that development of the framework and of the policies around there. They are still not mature in, in Kenya. But definitely in the next five years, we see this getting clearer and we will be there as a player in the carbon credit area and we will see how much we can be involved. We are looking in our strategic plan at uh, alternative revenue sources and uh, carbon credit trading is definitely one of the things that we will be looking at as the policies around and as the area develops and matures in the country. We should be winding up now. We've had a long conversation that's around two hours now. Conversation. I see a lot of discussions going on on Twitter. The Kenya Power Chair, Joe Mbivo, uh, is very active there. 
are responding to some of the questions. So if you have any questions, uh, just type them below our pinned tweet and uh, we'll tag the appropriate people at Kenya Power to be able to answer your questions. We'll come to the end of the conversation. This has been a very intriguing conversation. At some point, we'll also get you guys back to be able to answer more questions. And I think Rosemary, we owe future female engineers of spaces on that and at some point also would work on that uh, with you. Yeah. So any, maybe closing thoughts once you have, maybe start with a file and then drop money. Uh, you can give us your closing thoughts and perhaps also tell us uh, where people can find you guys and find responses to any of the questions that they have um, about Kenya Power, about maybe customer service and all. Thank you for this opportunity. It has been quite a good uh, gaining session and also having the opportunity to get to share information about Kenya Power and educating Kenyans about Kenya Power. And if you look at the sector, there are a lot of opportunities for growth. We are still, when you look at the grid and the demand which we have on the per capita consumption, we still have a long way to go. As we get to grow and as we get to mature as a grid and as Kenya Power, we require the support of everyone. And what I can request is for Kenyans also to support us. We have been experiencing a number of challenges, and I think partly because of players not appreciating what we do, but especially on commercial losses, we did a lot of support from Kenyans, support us to serve you better. So as far as any queries are concerned, my email is rndolo at kpoc.co.ke, rndolo at kpoc.co.ke. We can engage. And any other clarification you may need will be there to serve you. Thank you. Before you answer, Rosemary, there's a comment you made about at some point during the year, we didn't have uh, hydro producing any power. Was that factual or someone wanted a clarification on that? You give your closing talk. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, that is factual. We would run the hydros during peak time because at peak time, as you have noted from the figures we have shared, at peak time, you literally need all hands on the deck. You literally need any possible available generation plant to be on board. Now, the reason why we were running hydros during peak is because the hydro level had gone so down. We almost got to the level where we needed to totally shut down, but we didn't quite get there. Just before we got there, the rains have thankfully come. So we were actually not running the hydros during the day to just save the little hydrology that was available. We cannot shut off rivers totally. Downstream, there's river usage. So there is some flow that really must go down. And so the little that was able to be had in the reservoirs was being used very sparingly at peak time to be able to support because at peak time we didn't have enough generation. But on most of the times we would not use the hydro generation. Technically speaking, that may look to you like not a correct statement, but it is correct because literally what we were getting from hydros was not adequate to support what hydros normally supports. So there was little generation from the hydros, very little that we really can't count on solidly as hydro generation. Literally, we were not having the hydro generation. Give us your closing call and especially speak to the future female engineers. I will be glad to have a conversation on that. We have programs and plans where we are supporting young ladies who are taking STEM subjects. We do visit them in schools. We have talks with them. We clarify to them the engineering field and all. We have young engineers that have graduated from college at a diploma level, at certificate level. 
at degree level. In the energy sector institutions, we have affirmative action towards uh, onboarding these ladies whenever there's opportunity. And uh, it will be a great pleasure to continue this conversation in more depth, just to discuss about what we are doing, to have these engineers onboarded, to have them strengthened, to give them opportunities, to have them registered uh, so that they practice as registered engineers, to move them to even consulting engineers and levels of responsibility in the engineering field. The numbers are now better than they were before. We are not at 2%. We are at about uh, 7.58%. Still not good enough, but better than before. My parting shot, I would also go to the support we need from the public in terms of security of our infrastructure. Some resources are now being spent in restoring vandalized in, in infrastructure. That means when, you, when our infrastructure is vandalized, then you're slowing down our development because instead of spending these resources in development, we are spending them in vandalism. We have the other area of theft of electricity. Please make it very loud to Kenyans by stealing electricity. We are shooting ourselves in the foot and we are making the country not move at the pace that we would love to move in the energy sector. Finally, I want to give my commitment that as KPLC, we are committed to serving you. We would be very glad to continually clarify some of these issues so that it doesn't look like we are careless about our customers, that we don't care about our customers, that we don't care about our infrastructure. We are putting our best foot forward. We are very committed employees across the counties. They are willing and able to serve you. Let us support them so that they serve you better each day. Please raise it when you have issues with us. I have given our, our star 977-USSD, our 9771 National Contact Center, 24-7 available contact. My official email is rodor, O-D-U-O-R, at kplc.co.ke. A lot of times spell check changes the U and the O, and then the mails don't reach me. So just be careful to have the U before the R-O, O-D-U-O-R, R-O-D-U-O-R at kplc.co.ke. Let us continue to partner. This is a great nation. Our energy sector is a great sector. It is doing very well with stability now in most of the board. The Kenya Power Board is very well constituted, ready to go. You can hear our board members are even on this call, listening in and answering to some of your questions. The management team is more than raring to go. I believe our CEO could also be on this call, reminding us each day that we will be prudent in what we do, and we are glad to serve you as Kenya Power. Thank you for inviting us. We will be happy to come again. Thank you. Thank you. Kevin, uh, I think you popped in. Do you want to say hi? Thank you, Mokaya and uh, the Mwango team. Engineer Rosemary, thank you. Engineer Rafael Ndolo. I take note that we have quite a number of senior the leadership team in KPLC. Director Logan, our chairman, Joy Brendam Divo is also on the call. Some GMs are also on the call. Some of my colleagues also in the sector. I saw also the Ket Ketrako MD also was also on the call. Also quite a number of people on the call. Thank you. I think uh, we need to sustain uh, this conversation uh, to shed light on what, what is happening within the sector. And also to disabuse the notion that uh, perhaps there is little that is happening and, and also generally address some of the apathy that we sometimes see in the public spaces and also among our customers. So it's a fantastic forum. I believe that we need to uh, avail more opportunity, touch on specific issues, address, maybe break down some of the issues that perhaps needs to also be addressed uh, further beyond this conversation today.
Otherwise, from the KPLC team, we are very, very appreciateful and have a lovely evening. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you, Rosemary and Raphael, also for joining us. Uh, thank you so much, all of you, for joining us. And thank you for the team. And led by Joy Mdivo, the chairperson. Uh, she's been very proactive in helping us to get the team here to Spaces. So we're very appreciative of that. Thank you for all the special listeners. I see a lot of you in there. And I can't say uh, all your names, but I really appreciate that you took uh, two hours of your time to come and listen. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, forward them to us. We'll just forward them to the team. 